You take your Bibles and turn them with me to John chapter 15. By the way, um, someone did point out a, an error in the bulletin uh, in regards to the Holy Week services. Um, uh, it says um, April 29th and April 30th. Um, that meant to put March in there. That's my bad, my fault. So uh, hopefully none of you all think that Easter is next month. Uh, it's, ac- it's actually next week. So anyway, uh, John chapter 15. So today is the kickoff of Holy Week, beginning with uh, Palm Sunday, which is today, climaxing on Easter Sunday next week. And um, 2,000 years ago, in Jerusalem, that week began with a bang, as Jesus, on one amazing Sunday in Jerusalem, rode into the city on a donkey to the excitement of enthusiastic crowds singing and cheering and waving palm branches and shouting out, Hosanna, which means save now, and the religious zeal of the people and their messianic expectation for deliverance and salvation from Roman tyranny was at an all-time high. And so Jesus came into the city, and nothing happened. There was no revolution. Caesar was still on the throne, and by the end of the day, the crowds dispersed, and that first Palm Sunday, which began with such high hopes, ends in a quiet and even an anticlimactic way as it becomes increasingly clear to folks that perhaps Jesus has different intentions than what they want. Indeed, Jesus talks uh, about not political freedom for Israel, and he doesn't talk about killing the Romans. He talks about being killed by them. And he talks about being lifted up on a cross, and, and he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's the purpose of Palm Sunday. Jesus came into Jerusalem so he could die, so he could bear much fruit. As we continue our series through the Gospel of John, we've spent the last couple of weeks unpacking this fascinating metaphor that Jesus gives to His disciples about the vine and the branches. And Jesus, in verse 1, describes Himself as the true vine. Uh, Unlike Israel, which was described in the Old Testament as a vine that bore rotten and corrupt fruit, uh, people full of sin and wickedness, Jesus comes along and says, I am the true vine, the real vine. He, He demonstrates Himself as one who has done what Israel has failed to do. Jesus perfectly expressed the life of God in His own life, which is righteousness and love and holiness and goodness and truth and a perfect obedience to the Father. That's the kind of fruit that God is looking for, and only Jesus proved capable of perfectly and consistently bringing forth that fruit. That's why you, you in and of yourself, you are not loving. You are not holy. You, you are not kind or gentle or patient or truthful or pure in and of yourself. Israel and you and me are corrupt trees. As Jesus says, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. So, the solution 
for true and genuine change in our lives is not for us to work harder to be a better vine, but for the old vine to be killed, the old vine being us, and to instead be connected to the true vine. And through union with Christ, Jesus can bear fruit through you. And we're going to consider more how this works in our text today. So please stand with me now in honor of the reading of the words of our God, uh, John chapter 15. And just to help get the context, we are going to back up again to verse 1. We're going to read a few scriptures that we have read the past couple of weeks, but then we're going to move a little deeper into the passage as well. God's Word says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the Word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As, a, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you may bear much fruit, so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your holy and inspired word. And thank you for this wonderful text where the aim is fruit-bearing and the aim in the end is joy. Father, I pray that you would do a work through your word. I can't change anybody's life here. I can't even change my own life. I need and we need your word to work in us to bring about real change. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us this morning through your Holy Spirit, working through your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Apple trees produce apples. Orange trees produce oranges. Grapevines produce grapes. A person who is a Christian, who is in Christ, what do they produce? They produce Christ-likeness. They produce the very characteristics that are present in God Himself, what Galatians 5.22 calls the fruit of the Spirit. Y'all know the fruits of the Spirit, right? What are they? Love, joy. All right. If you want more of those characteristics in your life, then the most important thing for you to realize is that you can't produce that kind of fruit on your own. You've got to be connected to the vine. You've got to be connected to Jesus. And the only way you can be connected to the vine to receive the life of the vine that will produce fruit in you is for you to be grafted into the vine through faith in Jesus. 
If that hasn't happened to you, if you're an unbeliever, if you're not a Christian, nothing else that is said about fruit bearing in John 15 is relevant. You are instead described in verse 6 as a fruitless branch that is thrown away and burned. And so, and you don't want that, do you? And so my call to you is for you to place your trust in Christ's death on the cross as the all-sufficient payment provided for your sins. My call to you is that you repent of your sins, trade in your old, dead, fruitless life, and receive Jesus as the center of your life instead. It is that faith that connects us, that unites us to Jesus, and we become grafted into the, into the vine. And when we have crucified our old life and received Jesus' life, then we are positioned to receive the life of Jesus, and that life flows from Him into us, and then we can bear fruit. And make no mistake, fruit bearing is not optional for the Christian. God didn't save you just so you can coast to a future heaven as if your present life doesn't matter. In fact, Jesus says in verse 16 of John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Why? That you should go and bear fruit. That's your purpose, to be a fruit-bearing branch. You don't have the option of settling for being a lustful Christian or a pure Christian. I'm, I'm going to be a lustful Christian or a pure Christian. That's my choice. That's my option. You don't have that option. You don't have the option of being an angry Christian or a patient Christian. Some Christians have grown very complacent in their sin. Some Christians may be short-tempered or lack self-control or gentleness or joyfulness, and they excuse it by saying, well, that's just who I am. That's just how I was raised. I'm just wired to have a short fuse and, and wired to be impatient, and y'all are just going to have to accept that. No, I don't accept that as your pastor, and that's not biblical thinking. Yes, you are wired to have a short fuse. The wiring is called your sinful depravity. But Jesus Christ has come into the world to rewire you and make you into a new creation and to bear much fruit, unless Jesus died for nothing. So how do we change? How do we as Christians grow and bear more fruit? How do we get into a, a situation where we're seeing the characteristics of Christ increase in our lives and sin decrease in our lives? And our Lord Jesus tells us, in verse 4, he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, some people, when they think of abiding in Christ, they think of it as something that is totally passive. I'm just, I'm just abiding. I'm just I'm just I'm not doing anything. I'm just abiding in Christ. And they, they view the Christian life as kind of a, a let go and let God kind of experience. You just kick back and you relax and as if you have no responsibility to do anything. As long as you're saved, you just kind of coast along and you don't need to do anything and just the fruit just naturally comes. But the word translated abide comes from the Greek word meno and it carries the sense of, of staying or dwelling, or remaining, or continuing on with. J.C. Ryle, explaining the concept of abiding, writes that Jesus is essentially saying here, cling to me. 
Stick fast to me. Live the life of close and intimate communion with me. Get nearer to me. Roll every burden on me. Cast your whole weight on me. Never let go your hold on me for a moment. Be, as it were, rooted and planted in me. Do this, and I will never fail you. So this is not a a passive let go and let God thing. It's It's an active pursuit of the believer. Another preacher put it this way, that the Christian must aggressively keep himself in experiential union with Christ in order to be spiritually productive. Now, don't misunderstand. The believer, upon coming to faith in Jesus, is united to Jesus now and forever. On the other hand, your experience of that union of that relationship in real time, that can actually ebb and flow. Think about marriage. Just being legally united to your spouse in marriage doesn't automatically usher in, in all of its fullness, the experiential benefits and intimacies of that union. You've got to actively pursue a relationship with your spouse. You've got to cultivate and stay in close communion with your spouse. Same thing is true in your relationship to Christ. Some of you in this room may be saved, united to Christ by faith, but even so, you have a responsibility now to stay in close communion with Jesus, abiding in Him and experiencing all the benefits of that union, which include the bearing of spiritual fruit. It is to the degree that Christians are abiding in Christ that separates weak, unstable, immature Christians who produce limited fruit from those who are stronger and are expressing more obvious holiness and Christ-likeness in their lives. Now, no Christian perfectly abides. We all have the capacity to bear more fruit. So this is a lifelong journey, and it's a process for all believers. But practically speaking, how do we do it? How do we abide in Christ so that more fruit may come? And one of the ways that we abide in Christ is by embracing our inadequacy apart from Christ. Again, look at verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So apart from getting saved, the number one essential requirement to bearing spiritual fruit is laying hold of that truth, that apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Now, he's not saying, apart from me, you can't mow the lawn or do the dishes. Let's remember the context. He's talking about bearing spiritual fruit. You may be able to, apart from Jesus, do the dishes, but apart from Jesus, you cannot do the dishes with Christian joy and humility, even though you were hoping that your wife was going to do the dishes instead. Apart from Jesus, you may be able to teach a Sunday school class, or work in the nursery, or play the guitar up front, or preach a sermon. But apart from Him, we cannot engage in any work in the church in such a way that honors and glorifies Him and impart spiritual truths that change the lives of others. 
Apart from Jesus, you cannot in your evangelism lead anyone to Christ and see them converted. You can't be a Christian boss or employee to the glory of God. You can't image Jesus to your kids or through your marriage. You can't be satisfied with God in singleness. I'm really thankful for the new Sunday school that Jeff uh, launched this morning about peacemaking and and dealing with conflict uh, in the church that's very needy and necessary, but you know what? You can't truly reconcile with the brother or sister in Christ that you're in conflict with apart from Christ. You can't produce anything of any spiritual value apart from abiding in Jesus. You can't be more loving, you can't be more joyful, you can't be more peaceful, you can't be more patient or more gentle or more good or more faithful or more kind apart from abiding in Jesus. Do you get the point? Brothers and sisters, until we lay down our self-sufficiency and pride, we will be weak, impotent, anemic Christians producing very limited spiritual fruit lacking real spiritual power in our lives. We have got to get over this idea of of how strong and self-sufficient we think we are. And I know that goes against the mantra of the American dream and American can-do-ism. But friends, if we're going to bear abundant fruit in our lives, we need to trade in the message of the culture that says you can do anything if you put your mind to it for the message of Christ who says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And once that biblical attitude captures our hearts... In our minds, we can begin to abide in Christ, and we will find more and more Paul's words in Philippians 4.13 to be true of us, namely, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So we want to recognize our inadequacy apart from Christ, but then we need to get into Christ's Word. That's the other way we abide in Christ, through getting into His Word. Again, in verses 4 and 5, Jesus talks about abiding in Him and Him abiding in us. So when you get down to verse 7, and Jesus says, if you abide in me, you would expect Him to follow the pattern and say one more time, and I, and I in you. But instead, look at what He says in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Jesus is essentially equating Himself with His words, or to put it another way, He's telling you that a part of abiding in Christ entails the words of Jesus abiding in in you. In the Apostle John's first epistle, he puts it this way, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son. Now, what does it mean to let the words of Christ abide in us? It ultimately means for you and me to live in to immerse ourselves into this whole Word, this whole Bible that our hearts and our minds are saturated with, consumed with, and governed by His Word. It's it's, it's not just going in one ear and out the other, which may be happening to some of you right now, uh, but, but it's actually remaining in us. As Spurgeon said of John Bunyan, he was so filled with God's Word that if you cut him, he'd bleed bibline. If the Word of God is limited in you. Your spiritual fruit will be limited, guaranteed. And there are lots of people who say they love Jesus, they're into Jesus, and they have a relationship with Jesus, and yet they rarely crack open their Bibles. And guess what you see in their lives? Nothing. 
No spiritual power, no abundance of fruit. They very much look like the world. Why? Because the word of Jesus is not abiding in them, and they're cutting themselves off from the life-giving sap of the vine. Conversely, the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The Bible tells us to not be conformed to this sinful world, but to be transformed through the renewing of your mind through being changed from the inside out. Now, how how do you think that's going to happen? By watching lots of TV and playing video games for hours on end? By watching movies that are filled with smut and nudity and sensuality? Letting those things capture our hearts and our minds? Is that how how we're going to be renewed and transformed? Friends, to to change what's inside of us We've got to not only refrain from putting junk in our heads and hearts, yes, that's a part of it, but we've also now got to put something good inside of us to replace those things. You've got to get the Word of Christ in you. And as our minds are renewed by God's Word, guess what happens? It changes our priorities, our agenda, our direction, even our passions. It protects us from sin, and it moves us towards holiness. Why? Because the Word of God is living and active, the book of Hebrews tells us. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God impacts and changes the heart. And folks, the heart is the mission control center of your life. As the heart goes, so you go. That's the direction you go in. How you live is an overflow of the heart. So to change your life requires a change of heart. And it is through the abiding in God's Word that the heart becomes transformed. So we have the psalmist telling us in Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your Word. And then he says in just a couple of verses after that, I have stored up your word where? In my heart, that I might not sin against you. You see, the psalmist realized that for the way for him to be pure, to not sin, to bear spiritual fruit, was not simply to try harder and bolster his willpower. The way to change was to get into the Word of God and get the Word of God into him in his heart to let the Word abide in him richly. So if you want to grow spiritually and yield more fruit, I want you to honestly ask yourself this question right now. Is the Word of Christ really abiding in me richly? If someone cut me, would I bleed bibline or... If someone cut me with a bunch of useless quotations from stupid movies and music and pop culture spill out, what is really filling and capturing your heart? Whatever it is, I promise you, that's what's going to control you. If the Word of God is not abiding in you, you will not see the kind of spiritual fruit and change in your life that you want to see. And I know, I know some of you struggle here and you may have to make some significant changes in your life so you can actually start spending more time abiding in Christ's Word. It's worth the effort. Some of you may have to say, I will not go to Facebook. That struck a chord with somebody, I bet. I will not go to Facebook until I've spent time abiding in Christ through Christ's Word. 
For some of you, you may need to watch one less television show. Can you do that? Can, can you watch just one less television? And, and in our age today, we've got DVR, right? So we can, we can record the things that we miss. Watch one less TV show so you can spend some time in God's Word or less time on video games, boys. I don't know what exactly is undermining your time in the Word, but you better identify it. You better reevaluate your priorities and get real, or you'll never come close to bearing abundant fruit in your life. If you need help getting more time in the Word of God, talk with me. Let, let, let's talk about that. I'll hold you accountable. You can hold me accountable. If you're, if you're a busy mom and, and, and you can barely get time for anything because you got screaming children, we'll figure something out. We, we will find somebody to watch your kids for 30 minutes so you can lock yourself in a room and spend time with the Lord. It's that important. It's that important. We talk a good game about how we love the Bible and how crucial it is to our lives, but when we can go days and days without ever cracking it open or or thinking about it or meditating on it, our lifestyle portrays what we really believe. But I have never known a fruitful Christian, not a single one, who neglected the Bible. And this word was not an important part of that person's life. You'll never see the kind of spiritual change and fruit in your life that you want disconnected from the Word. But our problem so often is that we are not desperate enough for His Word. We really aren't. You see, we see eating three meals as essential, and you can guarantee we'll bend over backwards to make sure that we are eating. I know I do, and you can tell that, can't you? For most of us, it's not optional to go a day without eating. (laughs) Absolutely not. No option there. I'll be late for an appointment, but you better believe I'm shoving something in my face. But man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we may heartily amen that, but do we really believe it in how we live our lives? And so this is not optional. And I pray that Harbin's church will be a church that is so desperate to connect with God that we would do something radical like bend over backwards to meet Him in this book, to rearrange schedules, to lose sleep if need be, to do whatever we can to connect to Jesus through His Word and abide in Him. It really is that important. And I pray that God would let us have the desperation of the psalmist, the psalmist who said, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Let that be the cry of every single person in this church. So getting into the Word of Christ is essential to abiding, but so is getting into prayer to Christ. Getting into prayer to Christ. Verse 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, verse 7 presupposes something very important. Verse 7 presupposes uh, that we are praying. It, It presupposes that we are living in a state of dependency and need before God, which is why we are asking Him for things in the first place. Now, some of you struggle with making prayer a part of your lives. But let me ask you this. If you go the entire day without praying, what are you saying? Maybe, maybe it's unintentional, but what are you saying? 
If you go two days or a week without serious prayer, and I I don't mean thanks God for the food, amen. I mean where you are really communing with God, you are worshiping God, and you are praising Him and, and responding in your heart to what you've read in the Scriptures and asking Him for what you need. If you consistently neglect prayer, what are you saying? You're saying that apart from Jesus, you can do something. And we struggle with believing this. We struggle with believing that prayer will make any kind of difference in our lives. I know this because if we really believed it, we'd pray more. If you're not praying, you're not abiding. Therefore, if you're not praying, you will not see the kind of fruit in your life that you want to see, including the fruit of answered prayer. And here's the exciting promise that Jesus gives us regarding answered prayer. He says in verse 7, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That does not mean that you can pray for a BMW right now and it'll be waiting for you in the parking lot when we're done here. There are preconditions to Jesus granting our request. This is not a blank check. What's the condition? Look at verse 7 again. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. The condition is abiding in Christ, and His words abiding in you. Listen, if you are truly in love with Jesus, and if His word is dwelling in your heart, and when you see the beauty of Jesus' countenance, and the priority, and the splendor of Him and His kingdom, then I'm willing to bet that a BMW will be the last thing on your mind. You see, the point is that as you are increasingly abiding in His words, that word is shaping your mind, it's shaping your heart, it's shaping and transforming your appetites, it's rearranging your priorities, your desires, the things of God and His kingdom and His mission and His gospel become increasingly huge in your life. And guess what? That's going to change what you're actually praying about. As you abide in Christ through His Word, your heart begins to line up with God's heart. What you love begins to line up with what He loves. Your priorities become more in line with His priorities. And for that reason, the more likely it is that your prayers will be answered. But do not expect many answers to prayer if you are disconnected to Christ's Word and if it's not abiding in you richly. But... To the degree you let His Word abide in you, you will find more and more that you will ask for whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Another way of abiding is by living in the love of Christ. Verse 9, Jesus says, abide in my love. Charles Spurgeon said that to abide in Jesus' love means to live in it, to enjoy it, to drink it in, to be influenced by it. That's true. I agree with Spurgeon. But it also means something more. Look at verse 10. He says, Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Doing what Jesus commands is a means of abiding in Jesus' love. J.C. Ryle, commenting on verse 10, notes that the man who makes conscience conscious of diligently observing Christ's precepts is the man who shall continually enjoy a sense of Christ's love in his soul. 
It's not that the man keeping Christ's commands earns Christ's love. Christ already loves his disciples, and nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. But you will not fully enjoy or experience or sense the love of Jesus when you are out of step with him. And so, if you're a Christian walking in disobedience to Jesus, you will by consequence feel an insecurity and a distance from God. You will not feel the pleasure of God upon you, not because God moved, but because you did. Therefore, you're not abiding in His love. Now, we see how abiding in Christ's love fuels the Christian life and produces more spiritual fruit um, in John's other letter in the epistle of 1 John. And he says this in 1 John chapter 4, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So, you see here John is telling us that abiding in Resting in, relying on the love of God brings about the fruit of peace in our lives, and so our fear becomes diminished as a result. Abiding in the love of God also produces within us the fruit of love, which is why John says in the very next verse, we love because He first loved us. And then as our love is stirred up for God because of His love for us, That then brings forth the fruit of obedience to God's Word because Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then what happens when we're keeping His commandments? That brings us back full circle to John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Notice in these Scriptures, it's cyclical here. And the Christian life grows exponentially. We abide in His love. That abiding yields the fruit of love in our own lives. That love leads us to keep His commandments, and the keeping of His commandments causes us to further abide in Jesus' love, which will then yield more fruit, and on and on it goes. Now, friends, to fully abide in, uh, and, and as Spurgeon said, enjoy and be influenced by Christ's love, we've got to actually understand Christ's love in the first place, which is why if you back up to verse 9... Before Jesus says anything about keeping His commands, He first explains the quality of His love for His disciples. He says in verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Don't you dare leave here letting that go in one ear and out the other. Some of you didn't hear that, so I'm going to say it again. This is what Jesus says. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. You caught that a little bit more now? Are you beginning to see the the glimpses of glory in that statement? Let me try one more time. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Have you ever let that sink in? Or have you been like me so many times reading that and just, woo, just kind of moving on to the next verse? See, I wasn't abiding. I wasn't abiding in the Word, and I I missed it. Folks, Jesus is comparing His love for you with the love that the Father has for Him. That is so mind-blowing that I wouldn't believe it if it wasn't in the Bible. 
I mean, that, that's just crazy. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, Harbin's church. Love of God that he has towards Jesus resembles Jesus' love towards you. So let's think about this. Let's think about how God loves Jesus. God loved Jesus with a deep and affectionate and perfect love. Not just while he was on earth, but even in eternity past. His love for Jesus had no beginning. And you may think, well, surely that, that, that's not how Jesus loves me. Oh, yes, it is. Je- Jesus didn't just start loving you when you were born, when you were that cute little baby in the, in, in the hospital. He loved you before the foundations of the earth. In love, he predestined you to be adopted into his family in eternity past. His love for you had no beginning. He set his love upon you five billion years ago, a trillion years ago, way back into the past. It had no beginning. The love that God the Father has for Jesus Christ also has no end. No end. It goes on and on and on. And that's the kind of love that Jesus has for you. For you. Folks, internalize this. Don't just treat this as some kind of academic seminary course. Think about what this means for you, Christian. The Father delights in Jesus. The Father rejoices in Jesus. The Father does all things for the benefit of Jesus. That's the kind of love Jesus has for you. But sadly, there are Christians who live paralyzed with fear. Fear of Christ's frowning face. Fear of disapproval. Fear of rejection. But Christian brother and sister, Jesus will no sooner reject you and cast you aside than God the Father will reject Jesus. You ever thought about it that way? I bet you many of you haven't. It's time to start thinking that way. The Father's love will never fail or disappoint or let down or betray Jesus. And Jesus' love will never fail or betray you or let you down. I don't care if you had a, had a bad dad growing up. So did I. I don't care if you've been burned by other people in the past. So have I. I don't care if your own love is stale and cold sometimes. So is mine. Don't project those things on Jesus. His love for you is a great love, a superior love, a passionate love, an unstoppable love, an eternal love. Nothing in the cosmos can separate you from His love, period. Now, as we contemplate the comparison of the Father's love for the Son with the Son's love for you, it is important to note one important place where that comparison breaks down. One point where Jesus' love for you is not like the Father's love for Jesus. But you know what? That dissimilarity actually further highlights and amplifies the amazing love that Jesus has for you. And this is the dissimilarity. The amazing, full, perfect, 
unending love that the Father expresses towards Jesus is deserved. It is merited. Jesus is a person of infinite worth and beauty and value and perfection. What's more, Jesus has never displeased or disappointed the Father, not one time. Jesus has always obeyed the Father. Jesus has never broken the Father's heart or let the Father down. And Jesus is worthy of adoration and honor, and He is worthy of the Father's love. And ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, we are none of those things that Jesus is. We are sinners. We are wretches before Him. We are unworthy of anything but judgment. You and I have displeased and disappointed God and let Him down and have broken His heart and have betrayed Him over and 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 over again. And what's more... It's not just that we're human and sometimes we make mistakes, but we hated God and spit in His face and mocked Him and taken Him for granted. We're thankless and arrogant and totally unlovely and unlovable. And it is these sorts of people that Jesus Christ loves as the Father loves Him. Do not let that go in one ear and out the other, Christian. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to accolades and shouts of Hosanna, people calling Him the King. But they didn't really want Him as King. I mean, sure, they were fine with Jesus as long as Jesus did for them what they thought He should do for them, which was to fight their political battles and their military battles and release them from Roman bondage, heal their sick, feed their bellies. They were fine with Jesus being King and Lord as long as He did for them exactly what they wanted. And in that scenario, who then is really King? And who then is really Lord? And all their lip service to Jesus was a sham, which is why not a single one of those enthusiastic souls on Palm Sunday lifted a finger in support of Jesus on Good Friday. They were nowhere to be found as the cheers of Hosanna on Sunday gave way to the shouts of crucify him on Friday. And brothers and sisters, let us not dare think for a moment that we are morally superior to those people. Our sin put him on the cross. Our rebellion and our hatred for God put him there as much as anything that those people did. And it's people like them, people like you, People like me, that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to love. As the Father loved Jesus, so He's loved us. Palm Sunday was about love and about liberation. Jesus did not come to Jerusalem that Palm Sunday to establish a physical, political kingdom. But He did come to liberate people through His death to liberate us from a tyranny more oppressive and powerful and deadly than Caesar, the tyranny of our own sin and fruitlessness and the bondage 
of selfishly living for ourselves. It says in 2 Corinthians that Jesus died. Why, Why did Jesus die? That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus died so that you and me could get over ourselves, over the bondage of self-absorption and self-centeredness. So many of the issues and problems of life stem from the fact that we can't get over ourselves. This is what I've learned after years of living and sinning, and years of being a pastor. 90% of my pastoral counseling probably could be just summed up in three words, get over yourself. Now, I try to say that a little nicer in the counseling office and with graciousness and with lots of scriptural support, of course. But think about it. Think, think, think about how many problems in marriage would be solved. Think about how healing would come between parents and children. How, how people in, in, in the church would, would, would begin to stop grumbling and, and complaining about one another. Thinking about how people should serve us. Think about how, how much headway we would make with all of those issues of life if we could get over ourselves. Well, that's why Jesus died. He died that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. And, and, and by extension, if we're living for Him, then we're living for others. And we begin to not be turned inward anymore, but turn, turning outward towards God and towards others. That's the kind of fruit that Jesus has died for that, that, that we might bear in our lives. And He did this out of love for you, and this is love, 1 John 4.10. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus got what He didn't deserve, death, so that all of us who believe in Him can receive what we don't deserve, life. That's how much Jesus loves you. So receive that love, enjoy that love, bank on that love, rely on that love. Even when you are faithless, He is faithful. Even when your love fails, which it will, His doesn't. So abide in that love. And when you do, that will release into your life another fruit, which is joy. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you. Contrary to popular belief, holiness and happiness are not mutually exclusive. They actually go hand in hand. And that makes sense, really, when you think about it. As we are living lives of holiness, we are, we are now turning our eyes away from ourself. We're beginning to stop navel-gazing, and, and now we're living for God and for, and for others. You see, the most miserable times in my life, the times where I have, have some of the least amount of joy in my life, is when my eyes are on myself. And when I'm, when I'm at the center, it becomes all about, about me. And some of the happiest times in my life 
are when I'm putting it on the line for God and for others serving them, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And boy, I need more of those times in my life. I think I fail more often than I succeed. And you probably can relate to that. So joy comes. Joy comes with increased holiness. No one was more holy than Jesus. And no one was more happy than Jesus. Yes, even Jesus, whom the Bible calls a man of sorrows, a man of suffering and affliction, who endured intense trial and pain and difficulty, and yet in the midst of all of that had at the bottom of his heart a deep joy in the Father and in his love for you and in the and, 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 and his love for the glory of God, and, and that love and that joy sustained him through his darkest hour. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And Jesus offers such joy to those who abide in him. I want more of that. I need more of that. I really do. It's the kind of joy the Apostle Paul writes about elsewhere. Uh, as he talks about the hardships and trials of the Christian life, he says that we are sorrowful. We are but we are also always rejoicing. Those two realities are present in the Christian life. We are sorrowful because we recognize the realities of life in a sinful and fallen world. We don't put our heads in the sand. We see it. We see it. We live in it. We feel the pain. We look at that world, and we see there's great cause for great sorrow. But we rejoice because we look at the reality of those things through the lens of Christ and His truth and glory as we abide in His Word and in His amazing, unfailing love for us, a love for us that is like the Father's love for Him, a love so strong that even when we fail to abide in Him like we should and we fail regularly, yet even when we are faithless, He is faithful as the Father is faithful to Christ, so Christ is faithful to you. You're not the vine. He is. He will not leave you nor forsake you. And in light of those realities, there is also cause for great rejoicing. Let's pray.